Good morning. We are continuing our study of Nehemiah in chapter 3, and I want to encourage everybody just to begin with, open your Bibles to Nehemiah 3. Uh, we'll have some of the verses on the screen, but we're, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, just different verses and taking a scan of it. So open your Bibles there to our guests. We're glad you're here. You can jump in um, because this lesson, I think, uh, will be easy to jump into. If you don't have a Bible handy, there's one on each pew, so you can jump in as well. So in Nehemiah chapter 3, I want every one of us to take just a moment, not a long chapter, and just kind of scan over it. Don't have to read the whole thing, but just look at the whole chapter Glance over. Take 10 seconds to do that. Okay, time's up. What stands out? What do you notice? A lot of names, a lot of different words there, different places there. Uh, 38 names in 32 verses. Chapter 3 is a record of who did what. And all these names are listed for a reason, but I don't want you to just skip over this chapter and think it's just a list because it's more than that. A list is what you take to the grocery store or when you go to Lowe's. A list is that back to school list. Dare I say that? I just did. But you would not go to the Vietnam Memorial Wall and say, oh, that's just a list. Because it's much more than that. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah chapter 3. This is much more than just a list of names. This is a chapter about participation, about community, about commitment. It's what the names represent. These are men and women who love the Lord and are going all out in their service to him. For 52 days, they have dropped everything to rebuild the wall. Everybody's on board. They are facing continued opposition. They worked against constant threat. At any moment, one of the enemies of Israel could come after them, and they didn't know if they'd see the day or not. And the applications in this chapter are plentiful. You know, being a larger church, we are dependent on volunteers all the more. We would not last days without some super servants that we have that make everything work around here. But being a larger church also means that it's easy just to sit on the sidelines and be a spectator. And there are times for that. Maybe you've been through a personal or family crisis and you need to step back. You need some time to heal. Or maybe you're spiritually fragile or or weak, and you need some time to fill your cup. However, we need to be careful, because even with that, you can become complacent and become comfortable with doing nothing. And church becomes a place to be spoon-fed instead of getting involved in serving. If you're spiritually weak or hurting, We are glad you're here. We want you to be here. But please understand, for the overwhelming majority of us in this room today, we need to be participating. We need to be serving. We need to be involved. Nehemiah faced the same challenge. He could not build the wall by himself. How was he going to make this amazing feat happen? It would require so much help. How could he get spectators to become wall builders, especially when that was not their vocation. 
But for the wall to be built, it would require participation. And this chapter is all about that. And again, I think it's pertinent for a larger church. What I want to understand is that we have to all work together. You know, churches of our size are, we have different challenges than smaller churches. Average church, depending on which uh, source you cite, is about 100 people. So we're many times larger than that. Last week, Patrick Yerman was with us. We introduced him, and he's from a church of 50 in Montana. And he was so amazed to be able to come to a church of hundreds. In fact, he asked us at staff meeting, he said, how do you do that? How do you even know who the visitors are? I thought, good point. Things are different with a larger church. You may have heard this before. You see, God gave me a gift, not for me, but for you. And God gave you a gift, not for you, but for me. If I don't use the gifts and the talents that God has blessed me with, then I am robbing you. And if you don't use the talents and gifts that God has blessed you with, then you are cheating me. We work together as the body of Christ. With that in mind, let's kind of look at chapter 3 and see what we can learn today. I want to begin, if you fill in the blanks, is this. See the variety of people that are listed here, that are part of rebuilding the wall. There are 38 different names listed here in the chapter. Look at how verse 1 opens. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. So the chapter opens, talking about the high priest and the fellow priest, they set the example. They didn't excuse themselves saying, well, that's not my job. That's not my forte. That's not my responsibilities. I need to be doing spiritual things. I need to be doing my temple duties. That wasn't the case. They didn't see themselves as an exemption. Nehemiah lists them first. And even brags about how far they went to the adjoining towers. Look at verse 3 and 4. The son of Hesinah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabel, repaired. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. I want you to know I read that verse no less than 10 times, <laughs> trying to get the names right. I even read it out of the complete Jewish Bible. It kind of helps with that. And all I could think of is don't say banana, don't say banana, don't say banana at the end, because I think that's kind of sort of what it sounds like. But these are not just people with names we don't know, or we might even say strange names. Notice the details of how many people volunteered to do all this work in rebuilding the walls. Last week, last week, we talked about how they hit the midway point, and they were doing so well as far as progress, but they weren't doing so well as far as being able to keep going. They became fatigued and tired. It had to be discouraging to knock themselves out day after day and know that we're only halfway there. Several years ago, Irma Bombeck wrote this, yes, I'm tired, for several years, my fatigue has been blamed upon air pollution, water pollution, saccharin, underarm odor, iron-poor blood, lack of vitamins, and all sorts of other maladies. But now I find out that's not why I'm tired. I'm tired because I'm overworked. The population of this country is 200 million, 
84 million are retired, 75 million are in school, 22 million are employed by the government, 4 million are in armed services, that leaves 15 million to work. Take from that 14,800,000 people who work for the state, the local government, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 people in hospitals, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. But there are 11,998 people in prison. That just leaves two people to do the work, you and me, and you're sitting here reading this. No wonder I'm tired. I think we can understand. Nehemiah spread the work out so it wouldn't be unfairly burdened. Rick Warren, I'll put this on the screen, has the principle of participation. Look, look at this. Work with those who want to work instead of continuing to try and enlist people who won't work. Instead of complaining about the laziness of others, spend your time with those who are willing to work. I think there's some wisdom there. And what you see as you read through this chapter is Nehemiah shows us how the white-collar people and the, the blue-collar people are working hand-in-hand, side-by-side, working on the wall, restoring the gates, everyone except for one group. Look at verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Why was that? Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they felt like they were above manual labor. Maybe they felt like that was not their job to do. You ever known anybody like that? That's not my job. That's not my responsibility. And they'd rather it go undone than to go out of their way and do something a little extra. They want to call the shots or just mind their own business. That is not the heart of a servant. If you look through chapter 3, Look, look there with me. Verse 1 talks about spiritual leaders. Verse 2 talks about the neighboring communities came in to help. Skip down to verse 8. It talks about the goldsmiths and the perfumers, not the ones you would think would be involved. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Perfumers, goldsmiths. You've got Chanel working next to Tiffany and company. <laughs> kind of odd, don't you think, doing this kind of work? Maybe it was even odd to Nehemiah. They felt like, I need to include this. People are not going to believe this. And so he shared that detail. Because you wouldn't expect a jeweler and a perfume maker to even know how to do masonry work, how to repair a gate. But notice, they got their hands dirty. They, they got their portion of the wall done as far as the broad wall. That's how far they worked. They worked hard, apparently, and maybe even more than was expected of them. Verse 9, he mentions there a councilman, a politician. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district half of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So here's another ruler. Apparently didn't have any sons. But that didn't stop him or his daughters from getting involved. It was an equal opportunity project. Everybody's hands were on deck. Verse 17, the Levites are involved. Verse 23, several homeowners are mentioned there. Verses 26, 27, the temple servants are mentioned. Verse 32, the town merchants are included. And I thought about this as I was reflecting on the application for us. As a church, we are blessed with servants people who knock themselves out on a daily basis to do what needs to be done to help this church get along. 
And again, my experience has been it's easy on the other side of that is just sit on the sidelines and just attend worship and not participate and not serve. But Christ calls us to be servants. Jesus is the greatest of these will be your servants. That's why here at West 7th, it's not unusual to see a bank president cleaning communion trays or an attorney greet you and hold open the door or maybe a lineman leading the prayer because everyone realizes that the ground is level at the cross. Brings to mind all the gates mentioned in chapter 3. Do you notice gate after gate after gate? The sheep gate is mentioned there. That's the one closest to the temple. Kind of makes sense. That's where the sacrifices would be made. There's the horse gate, the valley gate, the fountain gate. Look at verse 13 and 14. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. I wonder why they stopped there. <clears throat> okay, guys, let's just kind of call it a day. You want to? Or, or maybe they stopped to go find the perfume maker. Said, hey, we need some help. You got your part done. We need some help here. Verse 14 continues. Nakiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. Don't you know, as they were visiting with each other during all this, like, hey, where are you working? Hey, are you at the fountain gate? Are you the sheep gate? Like, no, I'm at the dung gate. Oh. You know, nobody wanted to work there, I'm sure. Nobody wanted that responsibility. But every job, every career, every position, you know this, there's something about your job you don't like. There's something about what you have to do. There's parts of your job you may love, but no matter how much you love your job, there's some of it that you do not love, that you have to do anyway. And building the Dungate was important. How can you have a wall and with all these gates and have, well, that one gate, we never got around to it. You don't do that. Every gate had to be rebuilt. Every gate had to be strong. And I thought about that. There are lots of jobs at church that are not very glamorous. You don't get a lot of attention. Maybe not a lot, a lot of people run to and say, hey, I want to help with that because of a lot of reasons. It's so easy and we're even eager to give money to maybe a special project to, to feed hungry children. But we're not as eager to regularly give to the weekly budget that buys formula and keeps the lights on for people. We don't see that, but that happens all the time. Here's a fact. Sometimes we overlook this as churches get larger and larger. Sometimes there's more of these positions that you don't notice that people may not even be aware that you're doing that job. They don't even see you doing that. They may miss you and wonder why you're not here, and you are here, but you're behind the scenes serving, and so they don't see you. People who help with baptisms are rarely seen or noticed. The ones who run sound and PowerPoint, if they do a good job, we take them for granted. If they don't do a good job, boy, do we notice. But for the most part, we don't see them at all. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, you see a number of people listed there, and they're doing work that they've never done before, but they're doing it because they love God and they want to serve Him. 
Which brings me to the second point I want us to see. There was a variety of people, but there was a unity of purpose. Notice that Nehemiah had an organization. He had a system. He had a plan for doing this. He didn't just say, hey, you bring your hammer and tools, and we're going to all meet together at this section, knock that out, and then we'll just kind of make progress around the wall. When we get to the gate, we'll fix the gate. They didn't do that. Notice what he did. Key word here is section. You may have noticed that. He knew they needed to be united, and yet to do that, he divided them into 13 different sections. See, by ourselves, we can't do much. I can't do much. But collectively, we can accomplish so much. Somebody said this, snow is a beautiful demonstration of what God can do with a bunch of flakes. It can stop traffic. It can, it can close the city down. And you and I alone, I can't do it, you can't do it, but together, God can do amazing things through us. Reggie Jackson played for the Baltimore Orioles for a short stint when he was in uh, his Major League Baseball career. Earl Weaver was the manager, and Earl Weaver had one rule that you should not ever break. You don't steal unless you get the signal from him. That was his rule. You don't steal unless you get the signal from him. But Reggie was kind of wanting to do his own thing, so that was really hard for him. One time he was on first base, and he was able to steal second. Never got the sign that it was okay to steal, but he did it anyway. Slid in, missed the tag. He was good. He was safe. He looked over at Earl Weaver, kind of a smirk on his face. After the game was over, Earl Weaver put him aside. So I want to tell you why I did not give you the steal sign. Lee May was up to bat. Lee has a lot of success against that pitcher. But when you stole second, that left first base open. So they intentionally walked him, negating the power of his monstrous bat. The next guy that was coming up to bat didn't have the success against that pitcher, so I put in a pinch hitter to bat for him. That left me with insufficient bench strength should the game go into extra innings, which it did, which is why we lost. You see the difference? Reggie wanted to steal a base. Earl wanted to win the game. See, in a church of hundreds, and I want you to hear this, all of us, when we come together, when you think about this church, we need to check our ego at the door. It's so easy for us to say, well, I would do it this way, or why are we doing it that way, or why can't we do this, or why can't we do that? And we second-guess the leadership or those who are doing their best trying to serve. There are 20 times in this chapter, 20 times, where it said they worked next to him, or they worked next to them, or they worked alongside one another. See, with cooperation, is always better than criticism and complaining and second-guessing. And that's a big danger as the church gets larger and larger. Just as you say, well, they don't really need me. They seem to be doing fine. I miss a Sunday. Nobody notices. But the larger church gets, the more is true. In fact, the opposite is true. You're needed all the more. There's more people that need to be greeted, more people that need to be served, more opportunities. So good organizations, including churches, provide a climate of trusts, and teamwork. I want you to notice what Nehemiah did here. Did you notice his strategy? He assigned sections of the wall 
near where the people lived. Simple, but brilliant. Because everybody wanted the wall protecting their house to be the strongest wall. Nobody's cutting corners. Nobody's knocking off early. Nobody's trying to just get it done to be finished. They wanted their section of wall to be the strongest, to be the best, because that would be protecting their family. He was brilliant with the way he was going about this. And that's the way it needs to be with us within the church. I want to do my best for the Lord. He deserves it. Look at Romans 12, 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts differ according to the grace given to us. Paul knew the reason why the church would flourish and grow and thrive and spiritually mature is because they were united in purpose. I look back over our history of this church. We've got several different copies of that. And as far as I know, the West Seven Church has never split, which to me is a major accomplishment. Now, we have been a part of several church plants. Some of you may know this already. This church is responsible for planting the Highland Church and the Graymere Church and the Riverside Church that's now Northview and the Eastside Church that's now Southgate and the Mooresville Pike Church. But in all of our history, we've never split. Unity of purpose is key. So variety of people, unity of purpose. Number three, loyalty and participation. Look at verse 20. Kind of reads like any other verse, but I want you to notice one word that, st- that jumps out. Next to him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, zealously repaired one, another section from the angle of the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. The word I want you to notice is zealously. King James says earnestly. The ESV leaves that out. I looked it up. It's there in the original language. And it's mentioned there. It's the only time in all the chapter of who did what, the only time there is a descriptive term used. This guy zealously worked. So why? Why was he mentioned? Why was that detail included? Why did he, in this case, stand head and shoulders, be so different from everybody else, every other name, every other group that's mentioned there? Maybe it was his attitude. Maybe it was his enthusiasm. That word, zealousy, that's what that means. Maybe he was inspirational because he was elderly, and people thought he might dismiss himself and say, I've served, I've done my time, let the younger ones... Maybe that was it. Or maybe he was disabled and he was able to do work and people were amazed and inspired by how hard he worked. Or maybe, maybe he was a critic. Maybe he opposed Nehemiah, but he had a change of mind, a change of heart. And then he worked all the more zealously and got to work. Baruch zealously repaired another section. Romans 12, 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. There are times where serving will require you to get out of your comfort zone, even your area of giftedness, to step up and to mature in servanthood. Sometimes I'll hear people say things like, I would love to help out in the nursery, but diapers are not my thing. Diapers are not my thing. Whose thing is it? You know? Anybody who works in a nursery, 
would have something to reply to that. That's not why you help in the nursery. Maybe this guy wasn't given the section of wall that he wanted. That happens sometimes. Maybe he didn't get his way, but he still worked zealously. There's some reason why Nehemiah mentioned that. Obviously, they all worked hard, but he worked zealously. That's maturity and serving. There's one thing that we can learn from what's not mentioned in the chapter. Did you notice not one professional builder is named? Not one. Now, maybe it was there and they just didn't identify him as that, but it's not mentioned there. And the application is so obvious. Can we really, can I, can you expect to make a change in this world if we're not sold out in participating, involvement, and doing our best? See, the church is filled with volunteers, but we always need more. People who will do good things for God, who will serve, get out of their comfort zone, do things they'd rather not prefer, even when it's not what they've been assigned. Or maybe they're older, maybe they've got a physical limitation, but they're going to do it and do it zealously. Why? Because for them, it's not going to church, it is being the church. They get that. And I hope that describes you. Josh Hunt writes about disciple-making. He made this statement. People are motivated more by great cause than by comfort. They want their lives to count for something. Another author said it this way. We can never be completely whole in and of ourselves. We are inevitably social creatures who desperately need each other, not merely for company, but for any meaning to our lives whatsoever. See, when you serve alongside somebody else, something happens. It can be your best friend. It can be your family. It can be somebody you barely know. It can be a complete stranger. But when you serve along somebody else, something happens. Why does serving make such an impact? I think it's because we get beyond our comfort zone. We'll get beyond our giftedness. I think it's because we have that higher purpose. We have that commonality with that person that we may not know very well, but now we share that bond together. That spectator spectator mindset is about seeing and being seen. But being a participant just banishes that. It does away with that. Serving removes our pride. Serving humbles us. Serving binds our hearts. Parents, if you want to do something to help transfer your faith to your children, one man did a study for families for 10 years, and one of his observations, he said this, one of the most powerful ways to transfer your faith is for it to be accepted to your children is for parents to serve alongside their kids. Jesus was a servant. You know those words, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Did you notice in chapter 3 how God was working through Nehemiah not just to rebuild the wall, but to rebuild the people, to rebuild his nation, to rebuild this community? All the while, they were serving alongside one another. So I want to encourage you. 
Think about that. Where are you in your participation? In two weeks, we're going to have sign-ups for small groups again for the next year. So for you, I want to encourage you to serve one another and join a group or maybe rejoin a group. Maybe that's beyond your comfort zone, but maybe God could use you to be an encouragement to somebody else. Or maybe you need to move from being a spectator in some way. There are plenty of ways to serve. This is not necessarily a sermon about getting involved, and yet it is. Because that's the lesson here. But don't keep to yourself what God intended for you to share with other people. You see, the more people are involved, the better chance you are in rebuilding. Makes me think of Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Scientists say that geese can fly 72% further when they're flying in formation than when they're flying alone. Who put that in them? God knew exactly what he was doing. 1 Peter 4.10, look at this verse. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Maybe you've never experienced the thrill of God using you in some small way to make a big difference and bless others. Bobby Hill was a little boy living in Italy during World War II. His father was a sergeant with the Allied Forces stationed there. Bobby read a book about Dr. Albert Schweitzer. I put this picture on the screen. Dr. Albert Schweitzer was doing medical mission in Africa, and it inspired little Bobby. He wanted to do something to help. So he bought a, a bottle of aspirin, and he sent it to Lieutenant General Richard Lindsay, commander of the Allied Forces in Southern Europe. And he enclosed the letter with this bottle of aspirin saying, Sir, if any of your planes ever fly over Africa, could they parachute this aspirin down to Dr. Schweitzer? Lindsay was touched by that. He told a few friends about it. Somehow the word spread. A radio station heard and they shared the news. People began to respond by sending in money and funds. Even in a time of desperation when everything was being rationed, people were sending money. The Italian and French Air Forces provided planes free of charge. And as a result of all those people responding to that, over $400,000 of medical supplies were delivered to Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And he made this statement later, I never dreamed that a little boy with a bottle of aspirin could do so much. West Seventh is blessed with so many children. Maybe we should be thinking and praying, I wonder what God is going to do through some of these little ones. I wonder what God wants to do with some of us adults. You know, there was a boy once who had just a few pieces of fish and bread, and he gave it to Jesus, who fed thousands. That's what I'm asking you to do, young and old. Take your little and give it to God and let him make much. Eric has chosen for our song of invitation, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I want you to think about that. Maybe for you to see what God wants you as his child to do, how to participate, how to serve, how to do his kingdom work. Or maybe God wants you to see that you need to be in the family, that Jesus died for you, 
so that you could become his child. Today, if you're ready to obey the gospel, confess your faith, let him make you a new creation in baptism. However you need to respond, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?